Good evening. If you have a Bible, open it up to uh, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read from verses 25 to 34 before we get going. While you're turning there, I do want to mention again, if you are a graduating senior, we'd love to have you at the graduating senior lunch. It's next Sunday after the 11 o'clock service at about 12.15, 12.30. It'll be across the street. It's absolutely free to you if you're graduating. Uh, if you are graduating in May or over the summer or in December, you're welcome to come. And uh, it's just a great opportunity for us to get to see you one last time, get a chance to uh, say thank you and congratulations and all that kind of stuff. So we'd love to have you guys there uh, if you are graduating and uh, hope that we'll see you. So, all right, Matthew chapter 6. Start in verse 25. Jesus says this, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life, as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we rejoice to sing that there is nothing higher, nothing greater than you. You've made the heavens and you've made the earth and you've made each of us. You've placed us here for a purpose, to reflect the mercies and the glories of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray we would do that with our lives. Lord, we pray as we study your word tonight, you really would help us to understand it, uh, illuminate our minds and our hearts. Father, I pray remove the doubts that we often harbor Allow us to trust in your words, and I pray, uh, empower us through your spirit to obey. Father, we thank you again, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're talking about the subject of money this evening, and so for some people, that's an uncomfortable topic. For others, it's not. But uh, as we talked about, as we decided to talk about some of these tough questions from the Scripture, we realized we really cannot go the whole semester without talking on this topic of finances as we talk about some of the tougher questions in Scripture. One of the reasons behind that is, as you look at the Bible, there are hundreds of verses, hundreds of individual passages on this subject of money. In fact, some have said there's more passages and discussion on the subject of how our finances relate to our spirituality, more discussion on that than there is about topics such as heaven and hell. It's one of the most talked about subjects by Jesus, one of the most talked about subjects in the Old Testament, and so it's critical for us to begin to get a handle on how do we understand finances in relationship to our walk with God. 
And if you're like me, all of us have perhaps a little bit of a different history with finances. But if you're like me, your background and your experiences may shape a little bit of how you understand money. All right, let me just tell you a little bit about my background. It's probably similar to many of you. I grew up in a uh, suburban, upper middle class home. Uh, we were not what we would call wealthy, but uh, well off enough that we never had to worry about the clothes on our back. We never had to worry about food in our bellies. We pretty much had what we needed. We lived in a decent part of town. We didn't worry about a crime or smog or noise right in our neighborhood. We did okay. But after I went through college and graduated, took a couple of years and did an internship at a church and then uh, went to seminary, when my wife and I moved back up to Dallas to go to seminary, uh, we ended up, because of our financial situation, living in a rougher part of town than I had grown up with. Uh, And the area we lived in, we lived in a small little apartment and uh, there was a lot of crime. There was a lot of noise. There was a lot of smog. Uh, There were drug deals that happened on the street outside of our apartment door on a regular basis. Apartment across from us for a while, there were people going in and out at all hours of the night and we were certain that it was some kind of a drug haven going on in that apartment. There were times that I feared for Shannon's safety as she came to and from the apartment. And it was a different experience for me from the one I grew up in. Uh, And it got me thinking a little bit about poverty and wealth. And what I noticed was as I looked around, there were individuals that were there that uh, I realized they had no opportunity for any kind of upward mobility financially. There were men and women that were there that they had two or three kids and they were working two or three jobs and they were doing the best they could. And I realized the odds were that for most of their life, they would be in this little apartment with their family of five. Ran into one man as we were about to move out and he was moving out as well. And uh, he was about 70 years old. And I said, well, you're moving out. Where are you going? He goes, yeah, I finally put together the money to buy myself a little house, a little 800 square foot house at the age of 70, 75. So it began to give me a different perspective on this, this issue, and what was really intriguing was at the same time I took on a job as a tutor to uh, high school students, tutoring science and math and things like that, and the area in which I happened to tutor was in a very wealthy area of town. So I would drive from my little apartment in this tough area of town, and I would drive all the way to the other side, and I would go into this wealthy area, and I'd walk into these enormous homes, and I remember distinctly one of the homes that I went to, the man that owned the house was also the owner of a large chain of hair salons and it was just this unbelievably large house and they had expensive artwork and expensive decorations and huge arches everywhere you'd go in the bathroom and there's original artwork more expensive than probably my car you know as you walk in and just an unbelievable situation and so the contrast for me was very stark And I found myself really wrestling in that period of time with a number of different emotions. One emotion I experienced, one feeling a lot, was judgmentalism, not only toward the people around where I lived, but also toward the wealthier people. People around where I lived, often I thought, well, if they'd really just get their act together, work a little harder, they could make more money, they could do better, and I found myself feeling superior. When I went to the wealthy homes, I found myself feeling superior because I really thought these people have all this money and if somebody else had this money, they could probably do better. Somebody else like me, right? If I had the money, I could do a better job than they are. They don't deserve it. And I begin to think I do. Another feeling that I felt was uh, envy. 
I'd walk in, and even though I, I knew that money was not the sum of our life, as Jesus says, I wanted what they had. I wanted that comfort. Another thing I felt often was an inferiority complex. Maybe I'm not as good or as spiritual as these people who have more, or maybe I'm too focused on money, and I should be more like the people who have less. And so all of these emotions swirled around. And if you're like me, that, that's sometimes your experience as you think about this issue of wealth. You think maybe the poor are better off than I am. Maybe the rich are better off than I am. Maybe they are inherently more spiritual. Maybe it's better just to be in the middle. Proverbs 30 says, don't give me too much nor too little. Let me have just enough. So I don't have so much that I deny God and say, where is he? Or have so little that I have to steal for my bread. And you say, maybe it's better to be in the middle. And as you look at the history of Christianity, one of the things that you see is that there are really... uh, couple of different major responses to this issue of finances. Particularly in our country, I see two camps very starkly divided. One is those who would say, God wants you to be rich, or at least God wants you to be comfortable financially. He wants you to always have enough, even more than you need. He doesn't just want you to scrape by. If you are in God's will, you will have plenty. This is what we would call the prosperity theologians, and it's becoming a much more popular doctrine in our day and age. Let me just give you some examples. There's a popular prosperity theologian. His name is Creflo Dollar, and and that is his real given name, apparently. Uh, He's from Atlanta. He has what he calls the School of Prosperity. It's a training center. Here's the blurb from his website about the School of Prosperity. He says, are you tired of living from paycheck to paycheck? Have you ever observed a need that you longed to meet, but you didn't have the finances to help? Do you yearn to sow freely into the needs of the ministry? Do you want more out of life for you and your family? If so, you need the school of prosperity. Whether you are financially comfortable or head over heels in debt, you need this course. You will learn, number one, why God wants you to be rich. Number two, how to use biblical principles to make natural principles work on your behalf. Number three, the keys to debt reduction. Number four, how to increase for kingdom advancement. And number five, the automatic systems for financial freedom. So he would say, God wants you to be wealthy. That is God's dream and plan. Now, another more subtle way of putting it uh, might come from a guy like Joel Osteen who says this, I believe that God's dream is that we be successful in our careers and that we are able to send our kids to college. I don't mean that everyone is going to be rich, and I preach a lot on blooming where you're planted, but I don't have the mindset that money is a bad thing. My views may go against some of the older traditional teachings, but I think we should have a mindset that God wants us to prosper in our relationships, our health, and our finances. God's desire is that we excel and we see business leaders who are good, strong Christians running big companies. So in other words, he would say, it's not that everybody's going to live in the biggest mansion in town, but everybody, God's dream is that you ought to have enough to send your kids to college, to prosper, to excel in your business. All right, that's one side of what I see with American Christianity. The other side I see are those who idealize and exalt the poor. All right, they would say it's somehow more spiritual to be poor than to be rich. The poor are inherently better. Uh, some of you may have read a book that came out a couple of years ago by a guy named Shane Claiborne, a book called Irresistible Revolution. And this is one of the big theses of his argument is that the poor have more to teach us about God. The poor are more spiritual than the rich. Uh, if you read the beginning of his book, he has a series of stories about how in the homeless community, they have real, genuine community and they share what they have. And they love one another in a way that he never saw growing up. And then he ends that discussion by saying this, I learned more about God from the tears of homeless mothers than any systematic theology ever taught me. 
Right? So those who are homeless have more to teach us, he would say, than those who have studied and spent their lives studying about God and who he is. All right, so these are the two sides that I see often in American Christianity. One is I exalt the wealthy. The other is I exalt the poor. Right? As we look at the scripture, which is correct? Is either one correct? How does the Bible view this discussion? How are we to view this discussion? Most of you are in college right now, and the odds are pretty good. You're going to get out of college. You're going to get a job that pays relatively well. At least it will seem like it when you first get out. It will seem like a lot of money. And you'll live relatively comfortably. You probably won't want for food or clothing or shelter. You'll have probably more than you need. The question is, is that evil? Is it better to be poor? Or should you strive to be rich? Wherever God places you, how should you value and look at and use your finances? All right, so we're going to look at what the Scripture says. Briefly, before I uh, talk about some points from the Scripture, I want to just give a couple of definitions. The Bible's definitions of poverty and wealth are not always exactly the same as what we think of when we think of poor and wealthy. All right? in, in our country, the United States government has what they call a poverty line, below which they would say, you are poor. Typically, the poverty line is based upon a percentage of the average income for a family. Right? So if you're below a certain percentage, whether it's 50%, 40%, whatever it may be, you're considered poor. So the idea is that a certain percentage of the population will always be poor, according to those definitions. When you look at the scripture, though, the, the idea of poverty really has more to do with, I do not have enough to sustain the basic needs of life. Right. Poor does not mean that I, I only have five outfits in my closet instead of 25. All right? In the scripture, poor means I don't have any. Literally, as you look at Matthew 25, uh, there are people who are literally naked because they can't clothe themselves. or people who are starving because they can't get enough food. That's the biblical definition of poverty. If you look at the laws in Leviticus, Leviticus 19, Leviticus 23, one of the things that the Israelites were called to do when they planted a field and then harvested it was they were to leave the corners of the field for those who were the poorest. So that the poorest could come by and they could harvest the grain from the corners of the field and have food to eat. The poor in the scripture are those who literally, they don't know where the next meal is coming from. That's how poverty, and you see several causes even of poverty in the scripture. One might be oppression. As you look at James chapter 5, those of y'all that have been going through James with us, you see in James chapter 5, there's a scathing denunciation of the rich. And that denunciation is based on the idea that the rich, these rich he's talking to, have oppressed and defrauded the poor. It says, you have withheld the money from those laborers who have mowed your yards, mowed your fields you've piled up wealth and the oppressed cry out to God and you're going to be judged. So oppression was a major cause of poverty in the ancient world. Also disability or misfortune. You look at Acts 3, look at John 9, you see that blind people or lame people had no options except to beg. A blind person couldn't read, they could not get gainful employment, so they would beg. A lame person, they didn't necessarily have a wheelchair or a way to get around, so they would, they would beg. So disability or misfortune. And the other thing you see scripturally that could cause poverty is just laziness. As you look through the book of Proverbs repeatedly, you see Proverbs 10.4 is a good example of this. It says that uh, essentially the slack hand leads to poverty, but the diligent will be rich. And that's a consistent theme is that laziness can also lead to poverty. And as you look at scripture, what you see is that poverty is I can't sustain the basic needs of life, but poverty uh, might, you might respond differently to different poor people. A person who's lazy 
versus a person who's disabled, unfortunate, has been oppressed, the scripture views these differently, and we'll talk about that. All right, wealth, on the other hand, is having significantly more than I need. If poverty is, I can't sustain the basic needs. Wealth is, I've got a lot more than I need. If you think about Luke 12, you've got a guy who he harvests his grain and he says, I've got so much to eat, I don't know where to put it all. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to build down my barns, I'm going to build bigger barns, and I'm going to stash it in there, and then I'm going to sit back and go, I've got enough for years and years, so let me just eat, drink, be merry, and live happily. All right? That's wealth in the Bible. I've got significantly more than I need. If you are in this room and you've ever walked into your closet and thought, what am I going to wear? All right? Not because you didn't have anything there, but because you had too many things there to decide. By a biblical definition, you're, you're rich, whether you feel like it or not. Uh, if you look in your pantry, you look in your refrigerator, and you have enough food to last you for weeks on end, if you had to, even if it's ramen noodles, By a biblical definition, you're rich. You've got more than you need, significantly. So these are the biblical definitions of poverty and wealth as we look at it. And what we're going to see is uh, the scripture is going to say, we need to look at, are the poor better off? Are are the rich better off? What does the scripture say about poverty and wealth? All right, the first thing that we're going to see is this, that money alone does not determine my spirituality. My financial status does not in and of itself determine my spirituality. We live in a culture that assigns value to people based upon their net worth. We assign value to people based on all kinds of criteria, depending on what subculture you're in. If you think back to when you were in junior high, how did you assign value to people? Who were the people that were popular or not popular? Maybe based upon whether they could play a sport, maybe based upon their personality, maybe and likely based upon their looks. Right? If somebody looks good, I'm going to assign value to them. I can distinctly remember being in seventh grade and going to get my picture taken for the yearbook. And uh, I was concerned back then and that my hair did not always do what I wanted it to do. Uh, I didn't have straight hair. I had real curly hair and it would get out of control. And um, I had braces on my teeth and they took this picture of me. And uh, when I got the picture back, it did not look like I wanted it to look. And I thought that doesn't accurately represent what I think I look like. So I went back to the photographer and I said, can you take another picture of me for the yearbook? And the photographer looked at the picture and he looked at me and he goes, sure, right? Kind of winked at his coworker there. They took another picture. I got it back and it looked exactly the same as the first picture. It turned out that that is what I looked like and I didn't know it, but my value system was in looking good because at that age, you put value on what? How I look. We live in a culture that places value also in how much we have kind of clothes you wear, the kind of car you drive, the kind of house you live in, those are viewed as symbols of your value. Some of you may go home tonight and you watch Celebrity Apprentice and Donald Trump stands there and he stands in judgment of the people and their abilities and uh, their morals and all of these sort of things and he'll fire somebody at the end of the show and he will invariably say, "Uh, I think I made the right decision. Don't you think I made the right decision? He's got two little people that sit next to him and they always go, yes, you made the right decision, right? You're very smart, right? Why? Because it's his show, and because we assign value to him, not necessarily because he lives well, not necessarily because he's wise, but because he's the richest, most powerful person in the room. So we tend to assign value based upon a person's worth. Now, some may say, no, a poor person is actually more valuable. Poor person by the side of the road uh, doesn't have to worry about finances. They're secure, they're peaceful, they're happy. What we're going to see in Scripture is neither uh, wealth nor poverty determines my spirituality. There are rich people in the Scripture who are godly and viewed positively. Abraham, Job, 
Boaz, the husband of Ruth, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, who uses his family tomb to bury Jesus. They were also a group of rich women that followed Jesus and supported his ministry. All right, so there are wealthy people in Scripture who are highly thought of. There are also poor people who are highly thought of, like the woman in Matthew 12 who gives all that she has to the synagogue, and Jesus commends her because of her godly giving of her finances. So there are poor and rich people in the Scripture who are viewed well. So the scripture says, money does not determine my spirituality. Instead, God has made you. God determines your value. Proverbs 22, 2 says it this way. It says, the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. In other words, we have value based upon the fact that God made us in his image. And in his image, we represent him. So we have value based upon what God has assigned to us, not based upon finances itself. And as you look through scripture, the rich are continually reminded, do not put your value in your wealth. As you look at James chapter one, it says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. You put your value in your worth, in your net worth. It's going to fade away. Passage that is even more vivid than that, that I really like, is from Proverbs 23. It says, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. You ever feel that way? You get your paycheck from your job, whatever it is, and it looks great. You know, I've got 200 bucks. And all of a sudden, throughout the week, it goes, flies away. I happened to be watching the Cosby show yesterday, a repeat of the old Cosby show. And the episode that I was watching, Cliff Huxtable, played by Bill Cosby, sits down with his son and uh, he's trying to convince his son, Theo, you need to study and get better grades. And Theo says, I don't need to worry about that. I'm not going to go to college. I'm just going to get a regular people job. And his dad says, well, how much do you think you'll make at a regular person job? He goes, I, I don't know. His dad goes, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you uh, $1,200. That's how much you're going to make. And so he gives him $1,200 of monopoly money. He goes, now, uh, first you need to give me $350 for taxes because the government, he says, comes for the regular people first, right? So he hands him $350. Then he says, where are you going to live? And he says, oh, I'm going to have a nice apartment, nice place, be decorated. He goes, all right, give me another 300 bucks. Says, you got to pay utilities. Give me another couple hundred bucks. You got to buy food. Give me another couple hundred bucks. He goes, last thing he says is, Theo, you going to have a girlfriend? Theo goes, absolutely, you bet. And takes the rest of the money, right? Your money has a way of flying off. doesn't last. And so the scripture continually reminds the rich, do not put your value in how much you own because it's going to go away. Doubt that principle, just go read the book of Ecclesiastes. On the other hand, the scripture also reminds the poor person that poverty in and of itself is not inherently spiritual, especially if you are poor because you are lazy. One passage that's very intriguing is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul writes this, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. In other words, Paul says, if somebody is poor because they're lazy, let them starve. Let them starve. And the reason is because poverty in and of itself does not make you spiritual any more than wealth in and of itself makes you spiritual. Instead, uh, you are held accountable for how you utilize the resources you've given, including your body, your mind, and yes, your money. 
So money alone does not determine my spirituality. One of the strong trends in the 21st century that I've seen so far in Christianity is this idealization of poverty in and of itself, that poverty is somehow better than wealth in and of itself. Dallas Willard, the author of Spirit of the Disciplines, says this, the idealization of poverty is one of the most dangerous illusions of Christians in the contemporary world. Stewardship, which requires possessions and includes giving, is the true spiritual discipline in relation to wealth. He also says we do not have to own things to love them, trust them, even serve them. The percentage of those in bondage to wealth is no greater among the rich than among the poor. It is not money or gain, but the love of it that is said by Paul to be the root of all evil. And none love it more desperately and unrealistically than those without it. In other words, I can be just as much a lover of money if I'm poor as if I'm rich. Money alone does not determine my spirituality. Instead, I am held accountable for what I have. What money does, something interesting, what money really does is it sheds light on my character. Money doesn't determine my spirituality, but it does reveal things that are already in there. Many of us have had an experience perhaps where a particular prized possession revealed our selfishness. I was thinking this week about my two daughters. I've got a five-year-old and a two-year-old. And uh, a while back, several months back, somebody gave to them this little stuffed bear, kind of like a beanie baby thing. And it it was white and it had wings and it looked like a little angel bear. And uh, my two-year-old just loved this thing. And for some reason, she named it Meme, and I don't know why. She couldn't talk very well, and it it probably had some meaning to her. But she called it Meme, and she would carry it around, and she wanted to sleep with it. Well, what happened was, my five-year-old noticed this, and she wanted Meme as well. And so they began to argue and fight all the time about Meme. And we finally said, you know what? If you cannot get along and share it, we're going to give it away to somebody who doesn't have 30 other stuffed animals sitting on their shelf. And ultimately, we took Meme away. Now, Was meme evil? No. Well, yeah, I thought so at the time, right? But no, inherently, no. It's an inanimate object. It's not evil in and of itself. All it did was reveal the selfishness already within them. Now, I can't pick on my kids without picking on myself as well. So I'm going to share uh, just a little story from this past year. Uh, We have a lady in our church who makes kind of this peanut brittle stuff that is covered with a a coating of chocolate and toffee, and uh, it's just this unbelievable treat that she brings up to the office for us every Christmas and sets on our desk. And I wait all year for this stuff because it's just unbelievable. And so this past year, I walked in my office. There it was sitting on my desk. Merry Christmas, Matt. Thanks a lot for everything you do. Great. So I pick it up. I go home. And when I get into my house and walk in with the toffee container to show my wife, there were people that she had over that were sitting in the living room. She had guests. And I walk in and I go, hey, And she goes, oh, did you get the toffee, the brittle stuff? She goes, that stuff is great. She looks at our guests and she goes, you guys have to try this stuff. This is great. And I thought, no, 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 (laughs) no. Right? I'm holding it and I thought, no, there's not that much of it. And this has to tide me over until next December. Right? Well, so I, I, you know, so, okay, fine. So I set it down. I go, yeah, go ahead and try it. And they begin to eat it. And they're eating more of it and they like it. And the whole time they're talking about stuff that's going on in their life. I'm just sitting there and I'm angry about this stuff, right? I just want to take it away and run back into the kitchen and tell them to go home. Like, I just cannot get it out of my mind. Now, was the toffee itself evil? No. Was it bad? No. What was me? All it did was reveal the selfishness that was already there. 
Anytime I look at somebody else's stuff and I say, I I want that, I need that, what have I done? I violated the 10th commandment. That's what Paul says in Romans 7. Coveting is produced in me because I have sin dwelling within me. It's not the money itself. It's not the stuff itself. Anytime I'm tempted to want to hoard my things because I feel secure when I do so, it's because there's, there's evil and there's sin within me. There's greed and covetousness that was born within me. So money can reveal my character. And so the question really is this. What money does is it shines a light on my character and it asks this question. Can I trust God to provide? Or do I trust in my finances? Where are my values? Are my values in the things of this world and in what I can accumulate? Or are my values in the things of the kingdom of heaven? So I want to ask a few questions of ourselves about finances. The first question is this, what is my attitude toward it? We read Matthew 6, 25 as we began. And in Matthew 6, 25, Jesus says, don't worry about what you eat or drink. God clothes the lilies of the field. He takes care of the sparrows. If he does that, he can take care of you. What is my attitude toward wealth? Do I panic if I sense that my financial situation is going to be a little bit less secure than I would like, what will happen to you if you graduate college and you get a job at a pay lower than you were hoping? How will you respond? How would you respond if suddenly your clothing budget was cut, if suddenly your coffee budget was cut, you couldn't eat out at the restaurants you wanted to eat out at? Where is your security? What is your attitude toward wealth? As I was graduating from seminary before I had a job, I can remember going through the process, sending out resumes, all this kind of stuff, and talking to people about jobs. And I was a little bit nervous at the time because my wife was four or five months pregnant and I knew that I needed a job in order to support my family. And so I I was fearful, like some of you may be as you're about to graduate. I was fearful. I had these images and visions in my mind of us having to live on the sidewalk and start little fires with rocks that we found, you know getting squirrels and cooking them up or something like that because we were unable to meet our needs. And so I was panicked. And I'll tell you guys, I would come home every day from school and I knew that when I got inside, I was going to find out if there was a letter or a phone call or whatever from a potential employer. And as I would walk up the steps to our apartment, I would begin to have these little panic attacks every day. Heart would pound, my palms would sweat, chest would get tight. Fundamentally, the reason was because my trust and my security was in that job and not in God who provides the job, not in God who provides the resources. So the scripture says, shine a light on your attitude and on your understanding of wealth. Do you have to have it or do you cling to it because you feel that it's your only hope? Turn for a moment to Luke chapter 12, a couple of books over, Luke chapter 12 starting in verse 13. As Jesus is teaching, it says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Beware, and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. 
Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In other words, all your stuff, where's it going to go when you die? It's going to go into some big auction or kids are going to get it or it's just going to be dispersed. It's going to be gone. So you build your barns and you stash your stuff, but if that is where your security is, you're in big trouble. Instead, it says, you lay up treasures toward the kingdom of heaven. You use that money wisely. What is your attitude toward wealth? Second question to ask ourselves is this. How will I acquire the wealth that I get? As I think about careers, you guys think about your career. Are you going into a career primarily because it will pay more money and you will be more comfortable? Or are you going into a career because you believe that is the place you can most effectively serve and honor Jesus Christ with the gifts he's given you? That doesn't mean that all of you are going to be a missionary or a pastor or whatever. You can be an engineer, an architect, an accountant, and that may be the place God has you to most effectively serve and honor him. But why are you choosing the career you are choosing, and how do you intend to acquire the money that you're going to get? Do you intend to acquire it honestly and faithfully and diligently, or do you look for get-rich-quick schemes, the things that will uh, make you wealthy quick with minimal effort, perhaps through fraud or deceit. Scripture seems to care deeply how we acquire the wealth that we get. 1 Timothy chapter 6 says this, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now notice it doesn't say money itself is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And the idea is when I seek money at any cost, what happens is it says many have wandered away from the faith because if I'm willing to do anything to get money, If I'm willing to sacrifice my walk with God, if I'm willing to sacrifice my integrity, if I'm willing to sacrifice my family and work 80, 90, 100 hours a week to get that money, it says you're headed down a path of destruction. And the scripture cares deeply how we acquire our money. No amount of charity can make up for the acquisition of money by fraud or deceit or loss of integrity or loss of my walk with the Lord. No amount of charity. The scripture says the way we ought to acquire money instead is to approach it humbly and faithfully, looking to God as our provision. And interestingly, it also says little by little through a diligent hand, not through going to i1.com for 10 hours a day, trying to figure out how I can win the lotto. A few passages from Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 21. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Proverbs 13, 11, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Work hard, you work faithfully, you trust the Lord to provide. Scripture also talks about fraud and deceit. Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. If my wealth comes through fraud, oppression, deceit, get-rich-quick schemes, Scripture says you're skating on thin ice. It matters how we acquire it. And then thirdly, of course, it matters how we apportion it. 
how do I apportion it? What do I do with the money I've got? Not only how do I acquire it, but what do I do with it once I get it? I'm going to give you a few principles that the Scripture has quickly for how we apportion our money. First of all, it says steward it wisely. Luke 16 is a story of a, of a man who, basically an accountant who works for a large landowner, and the landowner fires this accountant. But before the accountant walks out the door, it's his last day in the office, he calls in all of the people who owe his master money, and he calls them in and he says to them, how much do you owe? And one guy says, oh, you know, I owe $400, whatever. And the guy says, well, take your bill and you write $200 on it. That's all you got to pay. Next guy comes in, I owe $800. Well, take your bill, you write $300. That's all you got to pay. And as a result, when he lost his job, there were people who said, ah, I like this guy. I'll give him a job. I'll take him in. Now, it's a dishonest thing he did, isn't it? He stole from his master. Jesus doesn't commend his dishonesty. Instead, Jesus says, the children of the darkness, those of this world, are shrewder with their finances than the children of light. And what is his point? This man knew that he needed to use the money to make friends for himself when he left. And he says, you use your money to make friends for yourself in eternal dwellings so that you'll be received. In other words, you spend your money on those things that will last forever. The advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The proclamation of the word of God. Use your money to create situations in which the poor are able to ultimately better their situation, perhaps go to school, perhaps hear the gospel so they can be productive members of society and then present the gospel to those that they come into contact with. It says you use your money in ways that are wise. You steward your money wisely. Another principle is this, support your family. Biblically, there's Not anything wrong with supporting your family, giving them clothes and food and shelter. In fact, 1 Timothy 5.8 says the person who doesn't support his own family is worse than an unbeliever because he doesn't take care of his own. So we support our family, but we support them simply and modestly. Don't necessarily have to always have the most expensive clothes, the best restaurants, go to the best schools. But instead, Scripture says you provide what they need. And then thirdly, give generously. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. God loves a cheerful giver. I give generously, I give joyfully. And let me challenge you guys this week. Go look at your bank statement. Go look at your checkbook, whatever it may be, however you track your finances, and figure out how am I stewarding my money? Am I living in a way that allows me to contribute to the things of the kingdom of God? So am I living, in a sense, a lifestyle that allows me to give? Or do I spend my money on the latest gadgetry? Do I always have to have the iPhone that came out this week and the one that will come out next week and the one that will come out the week after that? Do I always have to have the latest gadgetry? Do I always have to have uh, 10 movies a month? Do I always have to have three expensive cups of coffee a day? Am I living in a way that allows me then to prioritize and spend my money to invest in the things of the kingdom? Secondly, if I'm giving money, evaluate how am I giving it? Am I giving it to those things that will most effectively promote the gospel? Or am I just giving to things that will temporarily meet a physical need? Now again, there's nothing wrong with meeting the physical needs of individuals. In fact, I think we are called to do that, to give to the poor and to help the poor and needy. But I think the best programs that we give our money to are not those that simply just say, hey, I'm going to hand them a pair of shoes and then walk away, and that pair of shoes is going to wear out in three months or six months. 
But instead, I think the best programs are those that say, we're going to work with a child or an adult and we're going to bring them to a place where they can receive training and education and hear the gospel and eventually go back and not only be productive in their society, but help others then in their society to know the gospel and to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Am I investing in missionaries who share the gospel? Am I investing in my church that shares the gospel? Am I investing in those things of the kingdom? Or am I investing in things that are just going to deteriorate or go away? How am I apportioning my finances? It's a critical issue from Scripture. Again, hundreds of verses on it. So let me challenge us this week. Go back and look at how I use my finances. Maybe that you're here this evening and this issue of values, of heavenly versus earthly values is completely new to you because you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If that is you, what the scripture would say to you tonight is that the only way you can know God, the only way you can have eternal life is by believing that Jesus died for your sins. He rose again. He defeated death and sin. And if you believe in him, he'll provide eternal life. For those who have, the challenge to us is this. Am I investing in eternity in things that will last? with my money? Or am I investing only in things that, hey, they're going to be sold off, auctioned away, deteriorate, destroyed after I'm gone? Would you guys pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word, what it has to teach us about this issue of money. Lord, I I do pray that we would be faithful with what you've given. Lord, for those in here who maybe they are not giving anything right now, I pray you can convict them, Father, to go back, look at their finances, figure out how can I invest in the things of eternity? Father, uh, for your kingdom and for their own spiritual growth, Lord, we know that you don't need our money. You own all of it. You'll take and use whatever you want, but we need to participate in your work. Father, I pray that you would convict us about the ways we spend our money. Let us not fritter it away on stuff that isn't going to last. Let us use it on those things that will. Thank you, God, for your word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. See you all next week.